Okay, so if you were not here last week, then by now you're probably wondering what the table or the mirror on the table is all about. And so let me explain. Let me get you caught up. So last week, as we were working through, again, this three-part series of Equip, Engage, Exalt, last week we were focusing on the idea of engaging people with the gospel, of getting the gospel to people. And one of the things I talked about is how we have seen this real seismic shift in our culture, in the world. If you were to travel back in time to the days of the Old Testament or New Testament, what we see is that, by and large, in the Old Testament, New Testament, and even in most human cultures around the world through most time and history, people had some form of theism that they practiced. Now, it's not necessarily the worship of the one true God, but most people, most cultures, embrace some form of theism. But what has taken place in recent history is that human beings have become more secular, and we have, if you will, removed God from the table, from the underlying philosophy that guides our life, and we have instead replaced God, because you can't have an empty table, we have replaced God with ourselves. That's what the mirror's about. We have, in many ways, effectively become worshipers of self. People have bought into the lie that we don't need God, we don't need even any idea of a deity that we can decide for ourselves. We have effectively become the center of our own universe. Last week, as we talked about engaging people with the gospel, we focused primarily on the idea that that's the mindset of the people of the world. But what I want to submit to you today is that perhaps we too have embraced a little bit of that mindset in our own lives, even as Christians. Even as people who have put their faith in Jesus we have been influenced by this secularized view of the world, this humanistic, self-centered way of life more than we like to admit. And so the question that we're going to wrestle with today is I want to ask the question, how do we begin the process of moving the mirror off the table, moving away from this self-centered way of life, And how do we even ourselves move back to the idea that ultimately we're to live a Christ-centered life? How do we begin the process of moving from this side of the table where it's all about me and my little universe and this self-glorified existence? How do we begin the process of moving to this side of the table where we live truly a Christ-centered life, a Christ-centered existence? Again, this is the third part of this three-part series of Equip, Engage, Exalt. Two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of the Word of God. We need to be in the Word of God. Again, last week, we talked about engaging people in our fallen culture. This week, we're going to reflect on how the culture has influenced us. And how do we move from the mirror side of the table to the crown of thorns side of the table? How do we worship Him and not live as though life We're all about me. To do this, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. And here's what we're going to do today. It's there on your outline in your bulletin. We're going to talk about, first, before we get to Matthew 16, we're going to talk about the challenge. The challenge that you and I face, even as Christians, where we are tempted not to live a Christ-centered life, but instead a self-centered life. 
then we're gonna take a look at Matthew chapter 16 and see this grand invitation that Jesus gives us. And then number three on your outline, we'll talk about how to actually do that. We'll talk about application. But first, let's talk about the challenge. How do we move from the mirror to the crown? How do we move from a self-centered form of self-worship ultimately to a Christ-centered worship? And it really does boil down to that idea of worship. There's this theme in Scripture we see that you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. So let's talk about worship for a minute. We know that throughout the Scripture, we're called to worship. We're called to exalt God, to worship Him, to praise Him, to shout out to Him, to glorify Him. We know that God and God alone should be the one whom we exalt. But while we agree with that in concept and in theory, again, in the day-to-day life that we live, there's a big challenge we have to face. It begins with this idea that we have too narrowly defined worship. We have too narrowly defined worship. When we think of worship, typically our minds go, and even my mind goes, to what we do on Sunday morning. We have too narrowly defined worship and exalting God to the things we do when we come to church, singing and uh, praying and serving and giving. And those things are all good. Hear me out. Those are all great things. In fact, those are all essential things. And gathering together as the body of Christ together is essential to worship. But worship is more than that. Worship cannot be reduced to one to two hours on a Sunday morning. but rather worship really is meant to be a lifestyle, a way of life that impacts every day. Take a look at the scripture. I mean, in the Bible, throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, worship is not confined just to one to two hours, but it's something that permeates all of your life. In the Old Testament, for example, you look at the worship of the nation of Israel. When you look at the worship of the nation of Israel, ancient Israel had this broad concept of worship. Worship took place not only in the synagogue or in the temple, but it also took place in the home. It would take place in the temple and in the synagogue. People would go even sometimes multiple times a day to just to pray in the temple and to be with God's people. But worship also took place in the home as you come to the Sabbath table. It was a time of worship for the family. And throughout the year, you would have even week-long celebrations where people would do nothing else but worship the Lord. And so throughout the Old Testament, what I want you to see is, is worship was not reduced to this formalized thing that we do just once a week, but it happened throughout each day, each week, each year. When you flip over to the New Testament, you see the same idea that worship is more than just when the body of Christ gathers. Again, that's essential, it's vitally important, but worship is more than that. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, the Apostle Paul says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, 
or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What's amazing in this verse, Paul says that even in the mundane things of life, like eating and drinking, anything you do can be done for the glory of God. It can be done as a form of worship. Anything we do that's not sinful can ultimately be done for the glory of God as a form of worship. Every act of obedience to Christ, no matter how mundane, even washing the dishes, when done for his glory, is an act of worship. But again, this is challenging for us because we've so narrowly defined what this term means. But when you really take a step back and think about worship, whether we realize it or not, we all, all of us worship all the time, every day. We worship all the time, every day. The question is not, do I worship? The question is, what or whom do I worship? There's a theologian by the name of Alexander Schmiemann who has defined human beings not as homo sapiens but as homo adorans, beings who adore, beings who worship. This is what we were created to do. We are beings who were created to worship. But what we have to understand is the challenge that's before us is that there's all kinds of things in our life that are competing for our worship, that are competing for our heart and for our devotion. There are things all around us that try to get our time, our attention, our devotion, our allegiance, our affection, our worship. And if we're honest, I think we have to admit that many times those competing things actually capture our hearts. For some people, it's money. For other people, it's power. Others, it's relationships. But it ultimately all comes down to, what do I want? It comes down to the mirror on the table. And so we have to confess that I'm consumed by my consumptions. I am driven by my desires, and I try to find purpose in my pleasures. But if you've lived life long enough, you know that that's a futile way to live. That those things that we think will fulfill us never actually do. I've shared with you in the past this quote. It's one of my favorites from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. The truth is, and we know it, our souls will never be fulfilled by anything of this world. And so when we think about the challenge of worship. We have to understand that worship is a lifestyle. It's not an event. It's a way of life, not just attending a service. We worship all the time, whether or not we realize it, and many things in our life are competing for our worship. But here's the thing, and this is, again, C.S. Lewis, where he's brilliant. He says in Mere Christianity, he talks about how ultimately these desires of our heart These desires of our heart are not bad things. What's bad is when we place those desires in things that ultimately can't fulfill us. But he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, 
then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. So the question is, what is the real thing? What is the real thing that all these longings of our heart truly will find their fulfillment in? How do we worship the one and the only one who truly fulfills these longings and these desires? How do we move again from the mirror on the table to the crown? Lewis Carroll, who is famous, of course, for Alice in Wonderland, also wrote Through the Looking Glass. And in that book, Carol creates this mirror image world where everything is opposite of what you would expect. If you want to go somewhere in this world, this mirror image world, you don't walk towards it, but you actually walk away from it and you find yourself there. Everything in this world that Lewis Carroll creates and through the looking glass is upside down and inside out. And in it, he teaches us as his readers how to think upside down and inside out. And that actually is the secret of moving from the mirror on the table to the crown on the table. Jesus invites us in Matthew 16, which we'll see here in just a minute, to view things in a different sort of way. But what he says, his invitation, this grand invitation is upside down and inside out. It's not actually what you would expect. To explain, I want to introduce you uh, to a new friend of mine here. What is the link that takes us from the self-centered existence on this side of the table to the Christ-centered existence on this side of the table? And it's my new friend here. Uh, represented by my new friend, but what Jesus invites us to actually is to die to self. The way to move from this side of the table to that side of the table is to embrace Jesus' invitation to die to ourselves. This is the upside down and inside out way of thinking that Jesus invites us to. Let's take a look in Matthew chapter 16. If we truly want to live a Christ-centered life, a life in which the desires of our heart will ultimately be fulfilled? And I think here's the answer. Matthew 16, 24 through 26, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Again, you might be thinking, wait a second, I thought Jace said that Jesus gives us a grand invitation. This doesn't sound like a grand invitation. This sounds like a death sentence, and it is. But again, this is Jesus' upside-down and inside-out way of looking at things. This is the way of looking at life from God's perspective, not our own. This is part of the looking glass. In order to follow him, we have to think this way. If we cling to our life, 
and our own desires and our self-centered way of existence, then what we're going to find, what we're going to discover is that we actually lose it. But if we embrace his way of living, then what we'll discover is that we find true meaning and significance in life. Notice again verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's a few things I want you to see here. Notice first and foremost that this invitation is given to anyone. It's given to anyone. Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, this is for you and this is for me, this is for all of us. And notice the invitation, if you wish to come after me, this phrase, come after me, is a description of discipleship. To follow after Jesus, to live our life as he lived his. Now, as a little bit of background, you need to understand that Jesus didn't invent this idea called discipleship. In fact, even before Jesus, in his earthly ministry, there were other rabbis who were going around and people were following them. They were discipling under different rabbis. In the first centuries, uh, century, students would follow a particular teacher or rabbi, and this was a big deal. It was a big deal to follow your teacher, to follow your rabbi. It was a huge honor. And disciples were invited to do more than just educate their minds, but Following after a rabbi was ultimately about the transformation of a life. You embraced and you took upon yourself not only the teaching of your rabbi, but the very life that he lived. His life was replicated in you. You adopted the lifestyle of your rabbi along with his teaching. And so this is the invitation that Jesus extends again to anyone. But notice what he says there. If anyone desires, wishes to come after me, to disciple, to be my disciple, notice he must, it's not an option, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What this means is that if we want to really follow Jesus and be his disciple, then we can't just add Jesus to the table. We can't just add a little bit of Jesus here and there to our self-centered existence. No, we must radically deny ourselves, take up his cross, and follow him. To follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross. The key to discipleship, the key to following Jesus as a disciple is self-denial, where we live as though, we admit and live as though, it's not really about me. And he illustrates this graphically with the image of taking up your cross, the perfect symbol of self-denial. And then notice what he says in verses 25 and 26. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? As you look there at verses 25 and 26, I want you to see there's, there's a word that's repeated four times. So Jesus is certainly emphasizing it. It's translated into English both as soul and life. Soul and life, 
So it's the word suke. Let me read this for you again. For whoever wishes to save his suke will lose it. Whoever loses his suke for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and everything in it, all the things we pursue, but forfeits his suke? Or what can a man give in exchange for his suke? What does that word mean? Well, my friend back here, Dr. Fred Shea. Hi, Fred. Uh, he's written actually quite extensively on this work, on this word, and I, I texted him even earlier this week, and I said, how would you give me one sentence to define that word suke? And here's what he said. The emotional, psychological essence of a person housed inside a physical body and animated by the lowercase human spirit. The emotional, psychological essence of a person housed inside your body and animated by the spirit. A real simple, maybe too simple definition is given by uh, Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrase of the Bible. He paraphrases this word as your true self. Your true self, who you really are. Mind, body, and soul. Your emotional, psychological essence trapped inside your body, animated by the Spirit. So what I want you to see here is when Jesus says, for whoever wishes to save his soul will lose it. Jesus here is not really talking about eternal life or getting saved. He's talking about the uh, transforming work of God in our life right now. The fullness of life right now that will also lead into eternity, spill over into eternity. But Jesus is offering to us a new way to live. He's not talking about salvation. Salvation is a gift. It's given to us by his grace. It comes to us through faith. It costs us nothing because it costs Jesus everything. But what Jesus ultimately is talking about here is discipleship, and discipleship is costly. Jesus says it may cost even your true self, your life, your soul, to really live this kind of life. William Barclay says this, the Christian must kill self-centeredness. Everything which would keep him from fully obeying God and fully surrendering to Christ must be surgically excised. Everything. But think about this. This is really fascinating. I want you to take a step back and think about how much time, money, and energy people spend trying to find their true self. How much time, money, and energy people spend trying to find their true self or how many books are littered at bookstores, half-price books on Amazon of authors who are promising to help people find their best life now, their true self. Or the you-do-you idea. But what Jesus says here in Matthew 16 is that if we want to live our best life, if we want to find our true self, then we need to die to ourselves. This is again his upside down and inside out way of explaining life. And he's right. Our true self is found actually by dying to ourselves so that we can follow him. 
Our true self is not found in our money, our pleasures, our relationships, our power, or anything else that this world has to offer. But our true self is not even found in ourself. Our true self is found in dying to self. And dying to ourselves and following Jesus is the only way to discover, to discover the way life was meant to be lived. To be the people we were created to be. But again, I mean, I'll confess to you, and I would encourage you to consider as well, that we all know that we've really blown it in this area. That even as Christians, even as a pastor, I constantly gravitate towards this side of the table. And I try to live this life as though I am the center of my own little universe. So who among us can honestly say that we constantly and consistently live a Christ-centered life where we have died to ourself? But the good news of the gospel is that God knows and he knew before the foundation of the world that we would struggle, that we would sin, that we, because of this sin within us, we, even as Christians, live this self-centered kind of life. And so that's the very reason why Jesus came in the first place. He came to die for our sins, even our sins as Christians. He came to die for our sins, to die in our place, and he offers to us as a gift the forgiveness of sins. And here this morning, or if you're watching online, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation to put your faith in him, to know that your sins are forgiven. And if you are a Christian, if you have accepted his gift of forgiveness by faith, then uh, what I also want you to see here is that not only does Jesus forgive you of your sins, but he also offers to you his resurrection life. His very resurrection life. You see this all over the New Testament. Uh, we're invited to live out the life of Christ, for Christ to live out his life in us, to live the life that ultimately we were created to live. So how do we do that? Let's take a look. Let's talk real practically about how do we live a Christ-centered life, a life that exalts God in all that we do, uh, a life in which our life, our soul, our, our mind, our bodies, everything, all-encompassing is ultimately Christ-centered and not self-centered. Well, like I said earlier, when disciples in the first century would follow their rabbi, they not only learned the teaching of their rabbi, but they also adopted their lifestyles. They lived the life that their rabbis lived. They mimicked the life of their rabbi. And we can do that too. In fact, for nearly 2,000 years, Christians, followers of Jesus, have adopted and adapted his lifestyle, his practices, the things they, that Jesus did, we adopted into our own life. But it starts first with a mental shift. A mental shift. We have to really believe and really understand that Christ desires to live his life in us and through us. I love, again, uh, Colossians chapter 3, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Colossians chapter 3. He says this, So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you, but look up and be on the alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. 
See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though it's invisible to spectators, your real life is with Christ in God. He is your life. He is your life. Jesus is your life. And he wants to live his life in you and through you. And that's what we're invited to here ultimately in Matthew chapter 16. Don't you want to live that kind of life? Where, where when people see you, they don't actually see you, but they see your Savior? Don't you want to live the kind of life that Jesus lived, the kind of life that we were ultimately desired, uh, designed to live before our own sin got in the way? The question is, how do we do it? John Ortberg, paraphrasing Dallas Willard, says this, authentic transformation, and that's what we're talking about, the transformation of the soul, the transformation of the life. Authentic transformation is possible if we are willing to do one thing, and that is to arrange our lives around the kind of practices and life Jesus led. We're invited, and Christians for 2,000 years nearly have been living out the kind of practices in life that Jesus lived in his life that we read about in the Gospels. We call these the spiritual disciplines. And although the list of different spiritual disciplines varies, let me offer to you a few suggestions there on the back side of your outline. Notice your one thing for this week is to consider adapting one or more, be realistic, adapting one or more of the spiritual disciplines into your life in 2024. And so let's take a few minutes to go over the list I've provided for you, and I'll kind of explain briefly each one. But the the first few are obvious. When we look at the life of Jesus and the life he lived, the things he did, and how he spent his time, uh, one of the obvious ones is prayer. For 2,000 years, Christians have been people of prayer. We talk to God and we believe that God works. But again, prayer is a discipline. Let's be honest, it's challenging. And I'll confess to you that often in my own prayers, my mind begins to drift and to wander onto other things. Prayer is a discipline. But if we want to live the kind of life that Jesus lived, if we want to be transformed in our soul, then prayer is something we're called to do, we're invited to do. Number two is scripture. We talked about this two weeks ago, but Jesus clearly knew the Bible, quoted the Bible. Jesus was a man of the word. And again, for 2,000 years, Christians have been people of the book. It's the only way that we can live in this world and know the truth of God to combat the falsehoods of our world. Again, I'm not going to be legalistic about dictating to you how long you need to spend in the Bible or what you need to do exactly, but the discipline of regularly being in the Word of God is is very, very key to a spiritual life and to living the life Jesus invites us to live. The third thing on your list there is corporate worship. Corporate worship. Again, this is where our mind typically goes to when we think of the idea of exalting God. We we think about what we're doing right now. Uh, But corporate worship is very important. Christians, again, for 2,000 years have been valuing corporate worship when the body of Christ comes together. Now, the challenge is, since COVID, uh, you look nationwide, church attendance, frequency of attendance has plummeted. And so, 
If you struggle in that, I would encourage you this year as we begin a new year to commit yourself afresh to the regularly gathered body of Christ. Another thing on your list there is sacrificial giving and generosity. Jesus said you cannot love both God and money. You can't love both God and money. We can't love uh, both the things of this world and the giver of good gifts from this world, of this world. But uh, followers of Jesus, again, for hundreds and hundreds of years, one of the disciplines is the practice of giving, the means of freeing our grip on money. But again, it's a discipline. It doesn't come naturally. The next one on the list is service. How we spend our time. How we serve people. As we look at the life of Jesus, we know that he came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. And as we model the life of Jesus in our own lives, we're called to serve others as well. Uh, next is fasting. Uh, Jesus said, when you fast. When you fast. Now, I know that for some with specific health issues, fasting may not be possible. That's fine. But for most Christians, uh, it's something we should consider. And for hundreds of years, Christians have incorporated fasting into their lives as a form of worship where we deprive ourselves of something in order to focus our minds and our hearts on God. The next on the list is actually the opposite. The opposite of fasting is feasting or celebration. We think uh, throughout the scripture, uh, people rejoice and they celebrate together uh, over the good things that the Lord has done. And even here at Grace, we've done this more and more over the last few years. We're coming up on our 70th anniversary as a church, and we're going to throw a big celebration, a big party to celebrate God's faithfulness. Next on the list is confession. First John tells us that we're to confess our sins to God. The book of James tells us to confess our sins to one another in both our practices or disciplines of Christians for hundreds of years. We like to keep our sins hidden, but it's actually very healthy to bring them to light, to confess them. Number nine on your list is singing. Singing out to the Lord, making music for him, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, not Taylor Swift, but singing out to the Lord about who he is and what he has done. If you're looking for a real specific um, one thing that I recommend, especially for people with kids or grandkids, Seeds Family Worship, S-E-E-D-S. -E -E this is a group. They have multiple albums. They put scripture to song. I love it. My kids love it. Uh, it's a great way to uh, both put scripture in your mind and to sing out your praises to the Lord. Number 10 on the list is Sabbath. Sabbath. Now, we are not obligated to observe the Sabbath. It was a requirement for Jews living under the Old Testament, but uh, we are not. However, the Sabbath was created before the Mosaic Law. You see this in Genesis. And there is simple wisdom in just taking a break of not trying to work 24-7. Instead, taking a step back and, and resting in the rest that we have in Jesus and enjoying his creation, enjoying the fruit of our labor that we have only because of him. Next on the list are silence and solitude. Many Christians wrongly think that silence and solitude is reserved just for some monks who like to disappear into the mountains 
but actually because our world is filled with constant nonstop noise, just constant chaos, I think silence and solitude is a very culturally relevant spiritual discipline that I would invite you to try. The Lord can work through the noise of our world, but typically he works in moments of stillness. And so I would encourage you to go on a walk, not with your earbuds, but just embrace the stillness and the quiet of being alone with God. Number 11 is simplicity. This is another culturally relevant one. In our consumeristic culture, living a simple life is a way to swim upstream and to be different, to resist the cultural narratives of the day that you are what you own. To not get caught up in consumerism, but to be content with what you have, to resist the urge to fill your life with stuff that's not going to give you meaning and significance anyway, but to live a simple life. And finally, the last one on your list there, one of the most challenging ones for me, is slowing. To get off the hamster wheel, to force yourself to slow down, to stop and smell the roses both metaphorically and literally, maybe intentionally drive in the slow lane of traffic. It will test your patience, but that's a good thing. Just slow down. Listen, this is just the beginning of the list, and uh, there's a number of great books out there. You won't agree with everything written in them, but uh, books by Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, John Ortberg, John Mark Comer. Uh, These are some of the men who have dedicated their lives to this subject. I would recommend them. Again, keeping in mind, you may not agree with everything in them. But this is the kind of life that Jesus invites us to live. As we look at how he lived, if we want to find our true self, This is one way that it can be done. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in The Cost of Discipleship, says that when Jesus calls us, he bids us to come and die. And Jesus says, do you want to find your true self? Then die to yourself. And he invites us to live life a better way. A life of worship, not just reduced to one to two hours on Sunday morning, but a lifestyle of worship, to live the life that God actually wants us and created us to live. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we do confess how difficult this is. For us, your people, even those who have put our faith in your son, people who know that our sins are forgiven, people who know that our identity is in Christ and not in what we do, not in what we own, Father, we confess that it's so easy for us to get caught up in the cultural narratives of our day and to worship the creation rather than the creator. And so, Father, instead, help us to embrace this invitation of Jesus to die to ourself, to die to the things of this world, and to instead embrace a new way to live, a way that is radically transformed by the death and resurrection of your Son. Father, help us. Help us to live the life that you created us to live. Help us to live the life that Jesus modeled for us. Help us to believe that not only does his death forgive us of our sins, but his resurrection invites us to a new way of life. Father, I pray that as we incorporate these types of disciplines in our life, I, I ask that you would work in us to truly transform our souls. 
that we would find the life that you're inviting us to live. And as we do this in community with one another, as we do this in the world, I pray that you would give us opportunities for other people to, to ask us what is the hope that is within us, why we live life differently, and help us, Father, to point it all back to Jesus. Help us to be people who are equipped by your word, who engage others with the gospel, and who live lives where you are exalted for first and foremost. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.